that's a reaction specifically to this lawsuit that is going to ultimately probably imminently kill the entire conditional adult use retail dispensary program. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. This week, we've got a very special guest, John Puro, a.k.a. Potty, the smoker man and the daytime superhero at Green Spoon and Martin. John, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Oh, yeah. That was was one of the pop ones from the podcast. I'm Potty, the smoker man, here to chew up some weed new spinach for you. Oh, stoner new spinach. Yeah, Uh, that's uh, that's from the... uh, we're, We're pod brothers. We got the pod bond. Right. We also, you know, I like to say we feed our pod complexes, right? So we got that in common ever since I saw you guys in the same room at Benzinga doing one of the best interviews I've ever seen, you know, with Brady Cobb. So I'm happy to like sit in that chair. So thank you for having me. So John Puro, I'm a partner. Uh, I work out of the New York and New Jersey offices of Greenspoon Martyr. They are OGs in the cannabis game in it since I think 2014. And they represent everybody from, you know, the multi-state operator, biggest, you know, companies in the industry, publicly traded, you know, down to single state licensed applicants. And my focus is here in the New York, New Jersey area where I reside, you know, regulatory work, but extending to other states. And specifically by training, I am an IP guy. So I'm like the cannabis brand dude, right? I, with all the news that I cover, right? With all that I deal with the patent trademark office, and everything, I would say that, you know, I'm the one who at any given point, as things are shifting, I can protect your brand in the best manner possible in this very, very idiosyncratic industry. And then I like to add value from my clients by connecting them with, you know, three different processors or manufacturers in another state. They pick who they want to. And then I'm confident that I could put together the best deal, you know, having Frankenstein, you know, surgery to make these like badass licensing agreements to help my uh, clients expand. So that's the type of uh, shit. um, Oh, pardon my French, but Quentin Tarantino was a third parent. Pardon my French, but that's the stuff that I geek out over. Um, And soon enough, you know, we'll be relaunching because I love this stuff so much that my brain just sops up. You know, I can't remember the to-do list of three items that my wife gives me by the time I walk to the next room. But if anything touches upon cannabis, my mind just sops it up. So I'm like, all right, if I'm going to inadvertently become Encyclopedia John, right, that's how I started my own podcast um, with uh, news recaps and then also, you know, interviews because I love geeking out with guys like you or big macro players, MSO execs, you know, the Nancy Whitemans of the world, you know, about this stuff. And we are going to relaunch. I could tell you now, we relaunch the new name, right? Hear it here first. The new name is going to be Highly Informed. So the news recast will be Highly Informed Rehash. And I think the interviews I'm going to call Highly Informed Dope Discourse. But I have to say, guys, it's a little bit bittersweet because ChatGBT came up with the name. (laughs) I had names that I loved that weren't resonating with people. And one of my buddies, Brad Racino from NY Cannabis Insider, was like, don't come up with another fucking name with can in it, C-A-N-N, right? Just ask ChatGBT. I did. I asked us for 40 names for the type of podcast with pot puns in them and a freaking one out over (laughs) other names. So there's like a little bit, it's like, I'm not quite ready to hand everything over to the robot overlords yet. So I'm like, I mean, like, come on, that's a creative thing. It won. 
But um, yeah, so that's going to be the new name of the podcast and hopefully launching it you know, next week on a very exciting platform. But guys, thanks for having me. And I'm really excited we got to do this because I know you guys love this stuff as much as I do. Yeah, we're excited to dive into a bunch of topics. And I, I think it's really critical given where we are today on September 12th to talk about New York because New York just, just, just changed some of those rules and regs that I don't think Kevin and I even had a chance to process, let alone read through. And John, you being the guy here in New York, tell us what we need to be aware of, what was changing, what was just happened. Yeah. All right. So do the super, super, you know, 10,000 foot overview of how we got to such a fakakta. That's my favorite Yiddish word. It basically just means fucked up place in the New York market. So how we got to this fakakta place when, you know, look, New York undeniably is a place where unequal enforcement of, you know, war and drugs laws horribly impacted certain communities. Okay. And you have from the beginning of the legislation, you know, this desire to hand out a certain number of licenses to people affected by the war on drugs, as well as veterans, you know, and women-owned businesses. But then what also happened from the beginning of the New York market was, you know, there's a very strong, you know, it, people forget that the, you know, the capital is upstate, right? It's not by New York City. So who's upstate? The hemp growers, the farmers, all these folks who have invested heavily, literally bet the farm on hemp farms and then got devastated when CBD market crashed, right? And so there was lobbying. And this whole after murder, the bill was passed, the actual legislature, right? And the governor at the time, right? Like they passed this conditional cultivator and processor thing saying, hey, you guys got killed by the hemp market. We're creating these, you know, conditional cultivation processor. You get to cross over to, you know, actually be the first people growing, you know, marijuana. Uh, try not to use that term because it's, well, racist, but I, you know, use it to connote cannabis with THC, right? Like adult use shit that, so they get to do the first harvest. Unfortunately, it is outdoor. And these folks literally bet the farm on it. And so this created the situation that I call, I mean, you know, I, I'm not trying to take this lightly, but, um, you know, Farmageddon where there was approximately $800 million worth of the first grow you know, for the adult use market coming down the pipeline where these farmers literally bet the farm and didn't have any place to sell. And in that period that I, you know, maybe we'll talk about in terms of overall trends and issues with the industry, but in that period between when you pass a decriminalization bill Right. And you want decrim to take effect immediately. Because when people, when 94% of the people in New York City who are getting arrested for marijuana possession in 2021 are black and brown, right? Makes you nauseous, right? You want decrim to take effect immediately if you're legalizing legislatively. But it will take time to set up the market, right? And so what happened is you have $800 million worth of the first grow coming down the pipeline with nowhere to sell it. And in this interim period, you know, welcome to New York. You know, at first the estimates were 1,500 illicit stores are, you know, popping up on every block of New York selling actual legitimate product from California and Oklahoma and other places. Cause the only places in more mature markets where people are making money is if it's going out the, uh, the side door in some fashion, finding its way there and high end counterfeit products. My, my legacy clients, you know, you know, People who are out in a certain market, it's crazy the impact that these unlicensed stores, you know, have on them, right? When they are legitimately trying to cross over the right way and come in from the cold. Um, and so, you know, basically then what happens is the conditional adult use retail program, 
uh, is created by the regulators, by Office of Cannabis Management, to have some place to sell all this weed and stave off Farmageddon, but according to a lawsuit right now, violates plain language of murder. So where we are right now is this entire card program where they were going to you know, get these stores open as quickly as possible to sell that weed. And already they've missed you know, that harvest, really. Like we're about to be in Farmageddon part good, right? That's where we are. This growth season is going to wrap up you know, shortly. And so you know, what happened is they intended, like you know, they did all these things where they kept on trying to fight off Farmageddon and they kept on changing the card, the conditional adult use retail dispensary program after the fact after the application window closed because I covered the entire nation's news in the industry. Other regulators don't do that. You do that John, crap, you're opening yourself John, up I have a quick lawsuit. question for you. Yeah. So the state of New York knew that there was all these farms that were going to start cultivating cannabis, high THC cannabis, now instead of hemp. They have seen other states come online. There's got to be some sort of data in terms of foot traffic, like how many people typically go into one of these stores when a state comes online, because it's been done before. And there's got to be some sort of data in terms of inventory that a store could potentially have and move through in a weekly basis. So did anyone sit down and be like, okay, we have X amount of farms that are going to produce Y amount of cannabis, and we need... Z amount of stores to successfully distribute Y amount of cannabis? Because it seems like you guys, like New York, had all the puzzle pieces there to plug in these these variables into the equation to get a successful outcome. So, I mean, I love that point. Like, I love that point and that question because going even more macro, right, that is such a logical point of view that I keep on saying right now where I'm like, why are regulators making the same mistakes again and again? I understand if regulators or politicians are making mistakes according to the construct of politics and like, you know, what type of thing you could show to voters, like say lots of tax revenue from cannabis, right, to get reelected. My problem is, is when they're making the same mistakes again and again, that could be avoided and hurt the market and everything. And so what you touch upon is, you know, one of the things I flagged actually that I, you know, I'd like to, you know, talk about at some point about the overall market is oversupply. Talk about this same mistake being repeated. Look, to just answer that question specific to New York very quickly, they were half staffed. They had all this stuff coming. It takes time to write regulations and create application windows and have the staff to go through it. So really their sole focus has been how to get as many stores open as possible that could run as much weed through them as possible, which is why it went from just being retail-only model to enabling these retailers and now the people in the full adult use retail round to also deliver and also on-site consumption. When before it had been separate licenses that there hadn't necessarily been this idea that that the regular retail could also uh, move product this way, right? But so... I mean, you know, we, we could get, we could save it for later, or I'm happy to talk now, but the oversupply issue is kind of fucking ridiculous, right? And we are south of Canada, which could have been, you know, which was really the first great test case for our entire planet in terms of legalization. And we're at this point where they only license what they call the license, the LPs, the licensed producers, you know, seven in, in Canada. And yet I think we're now at a point where 
you know, those companies got, you know, billion dollar valuations. One of them hired me to do their trademark work in the US because of some secret sauce I came up with and trying out a couple of different firms. It's funny, right? But they had these like billion dollar valuations. And now they literally light on fire, I think, like a million pounds of marijuana that's overproduced every year. And this pisses me off that they don't turn this into a holiday or like lean in. If you're going to burn a million pounds or whatever crazy amount it is, make it a holiday on 420. Like, you know, do it appealing, man. Right? I can't, right? can't imagine shareholders are happy about seeing that, though. Right? I can't imagine they want that type of holiday. No, I don't think they want that, right? But it's just like, it just reminds me of this like awesome story I cover in the podcast, like one of my golden nuggets when like Colombian police in some city down there, it might have been Cartagena, right? They lit this like Titanic indoor grove that they found in the middle of the city. And then like the wind hit basically and entire neighborhoods got like contact highs. I'm like, the Canadians need to lean into this. But the bottom line is oversupply, right? We see it. Right. And I understand that it's difficult in the sense that you can't necessarily estimate the illicit market or how quickly people will cross over from it. But we are, we have enough data from BDSA and some of the other folks in the industry headset, right? Where you would think that. And, you know, when I was covering on the podcast the process of legalizing in Maryland and how they were doing it legislatively, that, you know, there were conversations saying, hey, Massachusetts has the same population that we do, right? They um, signed off on this many square feet of canopy and they have an oversupply issue right now and their market is tanking, right? And so, and then like the Maryland person's like, oh, you know, they have like 7 million square feet of canopy. If we go with our current proposal, we would have 30 million square feet of canopy. Does that seem like it would be healthy for the market? And they ended up not, you know, like restricting it to the lower amount. I think they end up going with like this high amount and like the people in the market already get to have crazy size grows. Um, and just like, why are we repeating the same mistakes? Right. How do you communicate and, those though to individuals that are like, it should be a free market. Let everyone have a shot. That's, yeah, that's, that's it, the right? counterpoint. Like, that's the counterpoint. That? Because yeah. what you could see right now that I find interesting as I'm like continuing to monitor all the news before the relaunch of the podcast is some of these more, you know, quote unquote, mature markets are seeing highest ever sales. So I saw that I think in Michigan and Massachusetts, we're having price crashes on products. Consumers seem to be happy, right? But, and, and, and you know, look, what will ultimately happen? Yeah, you could let the market, you know, play out and there'll be attrition, you know, to different businesses, but that is problematic. Now, like just I'm thinking this is clicking in my head for the first time. That's problematic in an industry where you're trying to accomplish certain good from the beginning, right? By helping certain people like social equity people or people affected by the war on drugs, right? Like you, you're putting your finger on the scale a little bit, right? Because we have this opportunity when we create these markets not to right the wrongs of the past, right? I mean, I interviewed, you know, Peter Tasha's daughter. Her brother is no longer here. His kids no longer have a father because of the war on drugs and unequal enforcement. And I can't say more than that or else I'll start crying, right? So you can't right the wrongs of the past, but you want to do good. You talk about creating generational wealth. And if you just, you know, construct it with an oversupply, you know, from the beginning, as helpful as it might be in terms of, you know, competing on price with the illicit market, uh, you are potentially hurting people, right, who you want to help. Right. I mean, I, I agree with like free market and everything, but there are issues with that. 
So one of the ideas I'm also just obsessed with is, you know, you can't trust regulators as good as their intentions are and politicians whose thinking is guided by, you know, how to get reelected to, you know, no one's really been able to crack the nut of social equity and hurting people hurt by the war on drugs. So I am obsessed with and constantly trying to come up with different ideas and rally industry leaders to the idea of let's try and do some good ourselves, right? Um, and figure out ways to like license great tech to, you know, businesses owned by people hurt by the war on drugs so that they have the best products, um, you know, by giving like a discounted licensing rate or other things like that, right? Or having some of the big companies essentially, you know, kind of pony up and say, look, we're down, you know, with this being part of the, whatever you want to call it, the social contract, you know, to be a big player in this industry that, you know, we'll hire a certain number of people from a reentry program or whatever. Like, that's the type of stuff that I'm into. But I think that's another overarching problem in the industry, just like oversupply. Like, it is very, very disturbing when certain communities have been, you know, unequally, you know, harmed horribly by the war on drugs. And yet the social equity programs that are created to try and help these people end up kind of commoditizing them. That's pretty disturbing, you know, with like the history of this country and, you know, like patterns and stuff. So, you know, that's another thing that I think about. But I thought that was a dope point that you made and you applied it to New York. And by the way, one of the most interesting things in the New York draft regulations from the beginning was the idea that built in in terms of cultivation, that there was a clawback provision, something saying along the lines, like if you don't end up, like if you go for a certain, you know, there are tiers for grows that you could apply for. And they said like, you know, I think it was something along the lines of if you don't hit 50% of the you know maximum capacity we license you for in a tier, we can knock you down. So that is actually one of the only things I've seen in the construct of regulations where there's forethought about the idea of oversupply, you know, which is interesting, right? Because if you want to make a little bit and then expand or whatever, right? Like it, but that was something that jumped out at me as, you know, the New York regulators came in, I think, with a lot of um thinking that they're New York and New York is special and it's gonna be, you know, a light and a beacon. But by doing that, they stuck their neck out a lot. And as a lawyer, all laws have unintended consequences. And there's so many more of those in New York. But I thought that that was an interesting one. For sure. And it seems like the goal originally was was one with a specific purpose. But as they kind of started to get into the details, they were making guesses on things that were really going to be very challenging to execute on, some of them being the real estate and trying trying to help some of the funds and understanding that the buy-in is so expensive and having someone fund this is extremely challenging. And then to get those to open up to support this market that they're artificially kind of building makes me think even more that they were looking to kind of like double down on ensuring that their investment into the licenses were successful. So they were willing to kind of punt certain areas in order to hold off. Maybe that's my own philosophy, but it seemed like that was some of the decisions they were making. But my question to you is they just announced that the review of retail applications that have secured locations will be fast-tracked. Shouldn't this been already included in the regs, understanding of how critical these locations are? That's specifically, I think that's a reaction specifically to this lawsuit that is going to ultimately probably imminently kill the entire conditional adult use retail dispensary program. When they said that that's not in the regulations, right? That's what they're talking about in terms of how they're going to look at the applications. That's definitely what that's there for. That is another measure to address Farmageddon Part 2, 
right? right? And get more retail dispensaries open as soon as possible, right? But what happened now was, you know, with the 463, you know, card licenses that they handed out, you know, you know, over time, so some are closer to, and the judge said, hey, if you basically, you know, you invested a lot of money, you did this or whatever, I'll give you an exception to the injunction. So those guys will kind of like, you know, before he like chops off Card's head, they'll squeak through and get to open. You know, there are 23 open today, they said, um, in that. They also have those growers showcase. You know, OCM submitted another, you know, they, they fucked up the submission, but there will be probably another 30 on top of that. So we're at 53. And then there's some other idea of people who invested and are close or whatever who might be accepted too, but say really ultimately out of the card program, when they initially said they're going to have 150 before they made it 300 and 463, I'm betting we only end up getting out of it 90 tops. And so those other, you know, um, oh God, I have to do math. I became a lawyer not to do math. Those other 370, yeah, those other like 370 or so card licenses, some of them, Right. Now, like now, the adult full adult use round they're saying is going to open most likely. I think they're aiming for October 4th. They choreographed that in the court documents, said that again today at the Cannabis Control Board meeting. So, what they're basically doing is, hey, cards, we aren't going to be able to squeeze through. You got basically everything else done, locking a property in this like, you know, month, month and a half window. We will look at you. Right. So, it's the application window is 60 days. October 4th, the window opens for cultivator, processor, distributor, micro business, and retail dispensary, right? That is a 60-day window. But they said, halfway through, right, you got a property, we're going to look at you. And really, I think that that's for cards. But it also means that other people can sneak in. The people with real freaking resources, the real estate developers, you know, those people, they can move quick if they're willing to cut the check, right? And, you know, look, ultimately, where's the limitation on this? They're replicating a lot ultimately from the New New Jersey program. They introduced provisional licenses, which are the equivalent of conditional. The limitations in how this market will launch are the same as they'll be in Jersey, where it's municipal approval, right? Can you get the mayor on the phone? You know, if you're in a small town or whatever, um, or can you have enough weight to throw around in New York City, which really lends itself to help like real estate developers. Right. Um, Not certain people. And property. Right. And that's, that's the biggest challenge again, is that they've kind of just fumbled the ball, to put it lightly. And now they've ended up where now where the biggest limitation is going to be real estate, because especially here on Long Island, how many yep. different towns have opted out, meaning that there's only going to be congestion of certain dispensaries with limitations given like the distance between them, like we've seen in other markets, which again, I understand how the whole thing works out. But that's kind of the challenge that I think the regulators, when they first put out these these rules, didn't really think through what that true limitation yeah. to getting people off the ground would be. I mean, it, there's, it, it's there's hard, right? They tried to know. You know, they tried to know in advance by having like the cutoff of the opting out date and everything, right? But you don't know how they're going to subtly bar people from coming in by limiting the zoning areas, right? So, oh, the municipality didn't hit the December, what, 2021 window to opt out. You know, so instead they just, you know, make the zoning so restrictive. But I mean, I have a client out in Long Island, which is the hardest place to find real estate because of how many places opted out. And he's been doing this like freaking two step, right? With what's going on with card in the court case, where it's like, I got a property. Oh, it fell through. I got a property. It is the property. I'm ready to sign. Court case freezes card. And then I'm like, don't sign, right? 
And now today, you know, with this idea that, you know, maybe he gets through the card exception, maybe if he doesn't, they're opening this up soon, they're going to look at it soon. I'm like, sign that shit, <laughs> sign that lease, right? You know, or just hold them on, cut them a check, right? Like it's, it's crazy, you know, how much all of this, you know, impacts people in real time, you know, and, you know, costs money. But yeah, so it's... But John, my question to you is that like, we're not the first state to go forward. We're not the first state. 575 recreational dispensaries in Colorado. And the state has a population of 5 million people. Uh And they're all like, New York, what what you said, a couple hundred? And it's got four times the population of Colorado. And they're, they're, they're planning if everyone of the licenses was given out today, they would still have less dispensaries than Colorado. I mean, of the card licenses, right? They're intending to give out more. And let's also not discount the fact that, you know, when we were talking earlier and I mentioned about, you know, the illicit stores that opened up, I quoted 1,500. Yeah, well, now the you estimates think, like 8,000 8, stores. Before, like the illicit... 8,000 stores in New York City. Right now. It's going to take time, right? Um mm-hmm to like continuously roll out legal dispensaries and continue to remove illicit legacy market dispensaries. So like with that being understood, like what do you think from a forecast standpoint is for New York to to be a full legal market with zero kind of illicit dispensaries on these on the corner. And I know we'll never hit zero illicit dispensaries and there'll always be kind of something rumblings like that. But like you you have to mentally kind of have something benchmarked, right? Is it is it three years where you kind of see no? That, I, I think it's I think it's, I think it's five to ten, and I think that of all the states where I think that New York is going to replicate, you know, some of the issues, I think it's most likely to end up being screwed up, like California, um, where it still is a legitimate business model that when you have you know very lenient you know decriminalization, very t- tiny penalties, and everything. You know, it is a business model out in California for storefronts to open up with very, very authentic looking licenses that are completely fucking fake, right? And, you know, the people eventually, people in the store will get arrested. You don't have enough product there. Everyone gets a slap on the wrist and they open up a new one, right? And so long as they're generating enough in sales to cover the fines and penalties and, you know, whatever rent they're paying, that's a business model, right? I think that'll end up being a business model to some extent in New York too. And that's why, like, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I was geeking out on some of these conversations recently where it's like, I'd love to kind of get into the idea of, you know, being creative and get into like thought leadership of, you know, how would you coach regulators? How would you design a system? What suggestions would you make? And I wanted to do this when I was like secretary of the Cannabis Beverage Association in terms of like model beverage regulations, because I think it's going to be such a key you know, segment for onsite consumption and fighting stigmas and getting people who are kind of curious, but will never smoke. And but like the idea of thought leadership to crack some of these ideas of, you know, what's the pre- right way to make a dent in the illicit market? You know, my thing is increasing taxation rate, start low, right? Increase, start low, compete on price, right? If, you know, we haven't gotten federal fund yet, but if you know we reschedule the schedule three, the biggest practical impact on the industry is 280E no longer applies, right? Which you know helps certainly going to help retailers a lot because you get to deduct expenses, you know, without being too clever using, you know, say like our co-chair of cannabis practice, Nick Richards, you know, the cannabis tax guru. Uh, without hiring Nick, right, you'll be able to deduct more expenses. Schedule three goes through, so then all of a sudden it's great because the entire industry that's getting killed right now. 
um, gets like a potentially up to 30%, you know, shot in the arm of profitability, which also gives you the better capacity to compete with the illicit market on price, right? Rather than being handicapped in taxation. By the way, I see like I'm like waving my hand here in the reflection. We have a tradition in my family that my daughter picks out like which of the bracelets, you know, that I wear every day. So normally it's like, you know, like the, she's in the gemstones. So I always like laugh guys like at Benzinga. I was like, you know, first time I, I got those like, you know, the bracelets with all the different types of stones. And I got to Benzinga. I'm like, is it like required to be in the industry to wear these types of bracelets? You know, with like all of like the, the onyx or the obsidian. Cause I always wanted them. And then I bought like 20 when I was in Mexico. I found ones that fit me. So of course, you know, today is the day that she goes with like the rainbow loom bracelet that, you know, I mean, I dig it, you know, but I just thought it's kind of fun. Whatever like, stones bring you luck, whatever you, whatever, whatever you're into. My, this is not my wedding band, right? For the record, there this, is an actual, you know, this, wedding band made out of, you know, metal on my left hand and not, a, I don't wear a run, rainbow loom uh, hoop jewelry ring for me and my wife. Just want to, you know, put that out there for those who actually watch this rather than listen. <laughs> <laughs> but, so are um, you for the rescheduling yeah. or do you think it should be descheduled off? Obviously, I think it should be descheduled, but like, come on, this is the biggest fucking thing that's happened in February. Right, right. I mean, like, it's not done, done deal yet. But uh, as I said, like, you know, when I got interviewed by, by a couple, like, you know, places, yep, the fact of the matter is one, I mean, I, I don't think Biden actually gives a shit about this, right? I think psychologically, I think, you know, Hunter's drug problems, right? Really, and, you know, Biden's age, um, I don't think he really gives a shit about this at all. I think he understands the fairness that there shouldn't be unequal enforcement of law. But it's something that he cares. It's a priority pushed forward. I don't think it's there for him. But, right, you know, what's coming up next year? You know, he's running for re-election. And, you know, like uh, the conservatives, you know, Mitch McConnell's not really full Mitch McConnell right now. But, you know, like conservatives are not going to hand Democrats political wins, right, before a presidential, like a super consequential presidential election. So he had the capacity here to have a unilateral, you know, it, you know, executive branch uh, win, you know, by doing something to the cannabis industry and rescheduling. Uh, and, and really, it, it helps the industry more than anything. And very, very importantly, opens up research significantly more. Like we are at the tip of the iceberg in terms of research into this plant, right? We have only played around with, you know, real research in like, three to five cannabinoids. Um, the Israelis, I think, estimate over 140. We're not including flavonoids, you know, terpenes, all these other different pieces. When a flavonoid wiped out, you know, pancreatic cancer, which is incurable in a rat colony. And so now there's a full Harvard study, right? That it, there's going to be crazy benefit that comes out of this research for different types of cancers and stuff. So I don't want to, well, obviously, you know, my day-to-day -day is all about you know, the industry and licenses and the business side of it, you know, let's not sell short the amazing positive impact that will come out of the opening up of research in this regard. We're, we're, we'll be a long way from the days when through a quirk of fucking history, the University of Mississippi was the only research institution in the entire U.S. that was allowed to do research on cannabis using weed that wouldn't have gotten your you know, your grandfather stoned in the 60s, you know, versus what people are actually using now. Um, so that's, that's huge too, certainly. So, so with, with research, I think we'll ask the same question. With yeah, research, we are going to ask that. We're asking the same question. You can go for it. Oh, right. With research comes IP. 
And yeah. with IP comes the ability to prove whether or not one is infringing or not on IP. And currently, right now, we don't believe that there are going to be lawsuits given that, given the scheduling of cannabis. But if it rescheduled to Schedule 3, do you foresee it to be more available to be, let's say, tried in courts? I don't think it's going to change. This is the thing, right? Like, there, there's all this paranoia out in like LinkedIn and posts and saying, like, oh, you're officially making this. You went from no medical value and no pathway, which wasn't entirely true, right? Because Epidiolex, right, was carved out. That was the amazing stupidity and hypocrisy of saying there's no medical value in this plant, but the active ingredient CBD from the plant, right, reduces kids' seizures by 80%. Just ignore that. We Epidiolex also that. has THC, by the way. What? Epidiolex also has THC in it. Does it? Yeah, because it's made from a plant. So there's minor, minor amounts okay. of THC. Okay, minor amounts of THC. Got it. So, but you know, now that people were paranoid that, oh, okay, they've made a medical research pathway, all of a sudden they're going to come stomping around into the adult use market and cause issues. No, they're not, right? The idea behind this is we are loosening things, right? We are not making them more difficult for them, right? Jeff Sessions was attorney general and no one went in and busted, you know, state adult use people, really, that much. IRS gives people a hard time. So I'm not concerned. And even on the medical markets on the state level, I'm not really concerned. The question is going to be what companies are going to go down this medical pathway with the FDA, right, for medical value out of the plant and different cannabinoids, thereby opening potentially up uh, federal trademark registrations for themselves, like Marinol, right, which falls into, you know, Schedule 3. Ketamine, you could get federal, you know, trademark registrations. You can't get that right now for anything that's considered plant touching. I have some secret sauce techniques, right, that are dependent upon, you know, certain things tied to the farm bill in ways that people haven't thought of yet. But I mean, and let's also not downplay this, right? This is the most consequential period on the federal level, not just because of Schedule 3, because of two other huge things, right? There is theoretically, you know, what I'm hearing, the scuttlebutt, the potentially the best possibility of safe banking passing the Senate right now, right? I mean, Mitch McConnell isn't quite Mitch McConnell right now. He's frozen. Um, I mean, really, right, he's frozen. Like, I thought we were freaking golden during the lame duck session, right? Cory Booker and the social equity considerations internally on Democrats were the main impediment right, of getting safe banking through the first two years of the Biden administration. And yet, right, in the end, basically, like we thought we had it in lame duck before Democrats turned over control of the House. But Mitch McConnell caught wind of it. Mitch McConnell, who, when I talked to someone who lobbied with him, had no idea that he had inadvertently legalized, you know, completely unregulated psychoactive cannabinoids, you know, by tossing his hemp farmers in Kentucky a political win in the farm bill. He had no idea, right? He doesn't know about Delta 8. So I think that it sounds like the best chance ever is at passing the Senate. But let's not forget that the terrain has shifted because the House is now in control of conservatives who are doing a ton of infighting. So I'm like, hopeful. Not hopeful, right? And let's not discount the fact that you know people were like, when safe banking was the only thing on the horizon, everyone was like, oh my god, they like make it pretend as if it's like a cure all. It's not, right? <laughs> you know, two eighty e being eliminated is by far more consequential, you know, in terms of the bottom line. 
you know, but safe banking, you know, in poll and pop polls I covered of the industry, you know, 70% of people said that banking was like their main issue. I mean, 280 wasn't an option, right? But it was, you know, look, when not a lot of banks are in it, the ones that are charge more fees, right? They're farther away, right? So there were the people who went through Kansas, you know, I used to, I said it with a, there's certain things that should be said with a mocking Boston accent when you're from New York. So that was the, the curious case of the Amica carrying the cannabis cash, right? Uh, you know, like they had to go to another state, right? Their armored car just to deposit their money. And that's when they got arrested by the feds, right? Who had been following them because they're crossing through a state that doesn't have, you know, legal adult use with legal adult, you know, with adult use money. So banking will help. You know, it'll make things easier. It'll make things cheaper when there's competitive competition in the banking environment. And then the third big piece is Farm Bill 2023, right? The state license market is caught between a rock and a hard place. The illicit market, which they can only compete with in certain ways. And all of a sudden, this magical market that popped up inadvertently of, you know, with real ingenuity of people taking CBD when they couldn't sell that shit anymore for, you know, for uh, any money and converting it to Delta 8 and having a psychoactive cannabinoid that you don't have to worry about 280E issues and you're selling in any convenience store, right? Rather than having to pay and go through the, you know, the hassle and the expense of getting an actual license to sell cannabis from the state, right? And so my opinion is, and, you know, there's scary shit out there in terms of these psychoactive cannabinoids. I think that a lot of the stuff that's happened recently with the DEA tidying things up because there was like coverage of THCO that didn't emphasize the O, right? And there's this idea when a study came out that said, oh, hey, THCO, if you smoke it, that will poke the same holes in your lungs that caused the EVALI, you know, uh, vaping crisis in 2018 in the illicit market, right? Like people are just selling this. There's no regulation, you know, and people could be really injuring themselves and all this stuff happened after that. All of a sudden, you know, when states hadn't, you know, there was one big group of states that, you know, made Delta 8 illegal, and then there was a pause. THCO comes out. Magically, another four states make Delta 8 illegal. Magically, the DEA wakes up and says, oh, we're going to change our definition of synthetically derived, basically, to knock out THCO entirely, but take other stuff with it. So what's going to happen is the Farm Bill 2023, in my opinion, is the last opportunity to address on the federal level this issue of these hemp-derived psychoactive cannabinoids. And what will inevitably happen is because this shit is very, very complex and the lawmakers don't understand it, they're going to give their best shot at it. Maybe they adopt some language that's cleverly suggested you know, by the hemp industry. And I have some of those you know, talking points that they're putting out there. And something's going to squeak through. And there's going to be a huge opportunity there on a business perspective or on a trademark protection perspective. I am gaming out all the different scenarios of what could possibly get through Farm Bill 2023. And that's the other thing, right? That I feel like, you know, if I'm a state licensed guy, if I'm one of these big MSO companies, multi-state operators, you know, hemorrhaging money, I would spend some of my money to lobby against, you know, the Farm Bill and close that kind of I, I know the term loophole that let psychoactive hemp derived cannabinoids sneak through. But it's funny in talking with, you know, a big exec um, from one of those MSOs, you know, they also said, you know, just like some of the members that we saw from the Cannabis Beverage Association uh, adopt a, if you can't beat them, join them perspective, 
right? Some of the best beverages and you know products that I've tried, the biggest ones known in this country, were getting slaughtered in the California market, right? And didn't even want to do like asset light IP licensing. They shifted to hemp derived cannabinoids so they could ship across state lines, you know, and just avoid if they have Delta eight. Avoid the states where Delta eight is illegal, and go the hemp derived D nine route. And you know that one of these MSO execs like, why you know, it, isn't that kind of like hedging to a certain extent? Right, we're having all these issues with state license. I, I consider it hedging. You know, why don't they take some of their brands and go in the hemp derived market too, and then be able to be sold in a bunch of stores and raise their brand visibility in a way that they can't when they're only selling their house brands in their house dispensaries. Right. So I think it's good. That's very, very interesting to me. And Farm Bill 2023 will end up, look, I mean, 280 is fucking 280. Right. That's the biggest thing that's happened to the industry, really. But Farm Bill 2023, in terms of longstanding impact on the industry, is going to be huge. John, I have one quick question with all this. So it gets descheduled. Say yeah. cannabis as the plant gets descheduled, or maybe Delta 9 THC, right? That's what's probably going to get descheduled to Schedule 3. All right. That goes schedule three. So now you're looking at it where it's something like Marinol, right? If I'm the manufacturer of Marinol, I spend a lot of money developing that method. It's I want to protect that market that I have. And if I'm a small kind of mom and pa medical shop, say in Colorado, and mm-hmm. I went through, I'm vertically integrated, and I went through and I generated a gel pill that is Delta 9 THC only. Essentially, I have the same product as Marinol has. So then am I at risk with it being descheduled and now the farm bill closing these these loopholes no. for no, the I, I don't Marinol to sue me for patent infringement? I don't think you're at risk, right? Because there are... But you see that and you see the correlation and, and potentially I, I some see, of those I see what you're getting at, right? I mean, and what I'll say is this, is that, look, there are certain... IP law will never catch up with technology, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's just the problem is like, Technology, you know, grows and develops at an exponential rate. AI is going to put that into turbo speed. The law can't catch up, right? But there are certain things built into IP law, right? Which is really like, you know, limited monopolies. You know, you're trying to incentivize creation by handing out limited monopolies that will encourage innovation, but not stifle it. And the idea is, is that, look, there are ways right now on the patent side where you could protect strains and you could protect you know, uh, items like that. And there was dating back probably like 2017, there was a cool article in GQ about like, who is this mysterious entity called Biotech Institute, right? That is registering strains, um, you know, applying for plant patents that has very, very expensive attorneys doing all of this because it made everyone think that, you know, a lot of people at this point you know, in uh, you know, common culture, we know the term patent troll, that these guys were lurking and they were going to start suing everybody, you know, for claiming infringements of patents on strains that, you know, we all know, right? I mean, prior art, there's this concept in patent that you can't get a patent on something that's prior art that's been out there. The cannabis yeah. industry is a unique problem for that because all of the prior art is in the illicit market. Right? There might be references to a strain name and trademarks. They don't let you. It's easy for a trademark because they don't let you trademark a strain name because they say it's generic. They can't hand a monopoly on AK-47 when people need to identify your strain by that name. Right? Come up with a brand that you could protect. 
You can't do the same thing on the patent side. So we're going to have to see how it plays out. But conceptually, I'm not concerned about you know, like any company coming along, spending the money, the Schedule 3 medical pathway right, to obtain you know, FDA approval and a gross designation and then try and eliminate the entire, you know, entire state license market, their upside is potentially patents, you know, on a drug, right? Or federal trademark registration. That's their incentive waiting for them on the other side, not the capability to be the biggest asshole in the history of cannabis, right? And, you know, and, and try and knock out everybody else in bad faith. Right. So I, I think that's the way that I see it playing out. There's going to be some, you know, like I, what I think I, we will see are is we'll see more acquisitions of um, smaller companies exploring some of this stuff by bigger pharmaceutical companies. Right. We saw it with GW Pharma. We saw it with Epidiolex, right? Jazz, I think it was a $6 billion yeah. acquisition. Yeah. Um, so what I think this will do is. That's actually something that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think about it, and maybe I should buy some stocks accordingly. Is that a lot of these small companies with promising cannabinoid uh, research um, will get bought up by bigger farmers? I think pharmaceutical companies will. This could open the floodgates a little bit on some M and A activity uh, along those lines because some of these smaller companies they're more risk taking. They're further along. They're showing the utility, the efficacy of um, different parts of the plant with respect to types of cancer, you know, neurodegenerative diseases, you know, like CBN applied to that. CBG, my favorite, my second favorite cannabinoid, the stem cell of cannabinoids. What do you think about like um, trade trade secrets, right? If you've got like a best case for extraction or for cultivation and a company is patented that, our understanding of what's currently happening now is that people are well aware of these patents and are just saying, come get me, come figure yeah. it out. And our expectation yeah. is that as this gets descheduled, people then might be a little more inclined to then be a little with the hammer and say, you you can't do that anymore, which could raise the value of the patents because right now, if everyone's infringing on it, what is the true value of the patents? So that's kind of where we see this being like an under the radar type change in the industry that maybe a big company buys a bunch of these patents and goes, you know what? We're going to really diversify our game. We're going to be an illegal entity that just goes and attacks everyone, which isn't the best for the space, but still one that possibly could happen. It is a risk. You know, it is a risk at any point that someone who's a traditional patent troll sees this industry and says, oh, there's an opportunity to make some money in that. But what I would say is, look, cannabis industry is the most idiosyncratic industry there is out there, right? It is one of the most heavily regulated industries. It is one of the most complex industries when you toss in hemp-derived cannabinoids as part of it, and state license, and dealing with the illicit market, and social equity concerns, and all of this, right? And so what I think is, is that um, any leg up you could have in this market is a good leg up. And when you're talking IP, you're talking about a limited monopoly. You're talking about the ability to carve out space for yourself amongst competition. If it is Technology that gives you the best product, that's a really big leg up, right? And patent's great, but it also only lasts for a certain period of time. Or it's only open to you if you pursue it within the first year, right? Of when something's disclosed. So if it's technology, protect it. Now, if it's a brand, also protect it, right? Because you're, if people associate you with quality, right? That is a value to you. Pursue it through trademarks in any manner that you can. Um, so if you patent something, you're essentially being like, okay, this is how I make this product. Here's a document. 
goes through the government. Now anyone can kind of go read it, right? So say I do that. I have technology. It gives me a huge leg up, right? Then someone else goes and read it, and they're just going to copy what I did. And I can well, that, only... that, that That's someone you just go after for infringement. So right? then, someone but, reads so the then patent I got to go after you patent infringement. They're How infringing do you your even... patent. So there's what? two there's two parts to this question, right? My first part is, can you pursue patent infringement when it's technically still illegal right now? Yeah. Because cannabis is illegal. So you could pursue patent infringement. And with that being said, how would you know that everything, right? But no, absolutely. You how know, would you like know that not, they're infringing on your patent, right? Like say that you have some technology on how you mix things together that's special or something. And that's like held. And then all of a sudden another product comes out, but there's a lot of other of these. How do you like, A, know that they're infringing, B, like determine that, okay, they've checked these boxes. Now we actually go after them. That sounds like a really complex little situation to me, John. You hire me. (laughs) (laughs) And I add lots of value to you by fighting infringements, right? And what I really like to do is save my clients money. So it's, you know, very, very tough. Like the earlier I get in with a company, right, the the better and more fun it is because I bring a lot of creativity to the table in terms of helping clients come up with brands that are easy to protect, which is incredibly hard in cannabis because it's the most crowded industry ever in terms of each state being its own microcosm of brands, hemp-derived cannabinoids being able to be nationwide, all this craziness, right? Like you can't underestimate how hard it is to find a brand that's actually available for you to use and expand in 50 states in this industry. You have no idea. I've had clients that were killing it because they had great vape tech, you know, that they just, the tech was so good, the true smokers would love it and they would just climb up the charts in every state they went, but they had a name that was a reference to a flower. And basically every single state we went into, they ended up being infringement issues. We tried to find an alternate name for them. They kept on sending me small names. We had to go through six names before we found something that I was relatively okay clearing. That's how crazy it is in this industry when it comes to brand names, right? So, you know, yeah, I mean, that's where I love adding value in, you know, fun ways. But yeah, I mean, trade secrets are a super useful tool because, you know, you may not... Well, patents have a limited lifespan. Trade secrets, like my favorite example, Colonel Sanders' blend of 11 herbs and spices, because I'm a fried chicken addict, that's forever. Right. You could even tweak it, you know, and no one knows the wiser. Doritos definitely do not taste the same as when I first had them, you know. So, recipes, you know, uh, extraction methods, all of that, that could be very effectively covered by trade secrets, but you need to treat them as trade secrets consistently. And what that usually means is template contracts, best practices, spending a little money up front. So like, you know, with IP, it's spend a little money up front to be vigilant, to protect shit properly, saves you a lot of money later, right? And, you know, gives you actual assets that investors, when they're looking to cut you a big check, so you can, you know, take it to the stratosphere that you protected your shit early when you had a chance to with technology, with patents, right? And when you filed nationally for your brand, so when they cut you that $2 million check to expand to eight different states, you're not going to find people who already have that name there because you had rights before them. So uh, there's a reason why I'm in IP and brands and I geek out over this stuff because a lot of times it is the most valuable thing that these people have. Cool. Let's do a quick rapid fire. 
Maryland versus Missouri sales five years from now. Which one's bigger? I think it will come down to population. Yeah. Guess Maryland or Missouri? Maryland. Under the radar market you think will shock others? Louisiana. True or false, interstate commerce will start sometime in 2024. <laughs> You're a funny guy. <laughs> Fuck no. No. <laughs> True yeah. or false, New York Try 2034. Yes. What? <laughs> True or false. Right. That's fine. You're fine. True or false, New York will be studied at Harvard Business School. <laughs> As a what not to do case? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, uh, no. Let's let's go with no based on my sarcastic answer. What is one factor statistic about the cannabis industry that would shock others to know? The potential heavy metal content in vapes, uh, certain vapes of uh, small technology that are not regulated, uh, where there's a direct air path uh, from your um, uh, from a you know battery heated to 450 degrees uh, straight into your lungs. I just saw the third piece of news in multiple years about this, where I said that certain cannabis uh, users were found to have high uh, volumes of heavy metals. I think that that is a story that is not getting enough attention. And I think that that is a selling point for the smart vape companies. When you started your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? What did I get right? I don't know. I mean, I think that, that I had the enthusiasm and I like to think, you know, to use like the bachelor quote that I'm in it for the right reason. So I think that I came to terms with my, you know, crazy, you know, white privilege in, you know, being a, an idiot college student who enjoyed himself, you know, with no fear of consequences when other people's lives are being ruined. Um, so I think that I got the intentions right. And what did I get wrong? I underestimated how many things politicians and regulators could get wrong and not learn from by the constructs of politics or the specifics of the industry. Pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. All right. Prediction time. John, as public companies increasingly show interest in the cannabis sector, do you predict a surge in patent acquisitions by 2030? If so, which areas of the industry do you think will be most affected? I think that any place where there is any type of, you know, cost efficiency created in terms of production, right? You know, like any anything where there is a capitalistic reason to do it, right? Because you have the best pre-roll technology that crank them out at a pace that other people can't, right? Or you have, you know, micro-encapsulation technology that'll shrink, you know, the absorption rate to two minutes, right? Before you feel the effects, right? And control which part of your, you know, digestive system, you know, processes it so you can have consistent effects. I really think that it's just going to, just like any other market, right, where the true value is, will end up getting snatched up. But keep in mind, we are at the tip of the iceberg about the money that will come into this industry. Alcohol, tobacco, pharmaceuticals will come in, right, unless explicitly prohibited, and then they'll still find a way. Tip of the iceberg, right, about the good that this industry can do and the money that will be made from it. Kellen. Um, I do think there will be a huge surge in uh, IP. And I think that it won't be in a specific area, specifically in the cannabis industry. I think that there's going to be innovations that come out of the cannabis industry that are going to be applicable to a lot of other industries, right? And I think that uh, Brian and I were talking with someone. um, The cannabis industry is really unique for technology development, especially in agricultural spaces, because it's the most valuable cash crop in the world right now. Per square inch of cultivation, it generates more revenue than any other crop on the planet. And with that being said, I think that you have 
an opportunity to develop specific technologies that would never be developed in other spaces, just based on the the value of those uh, crops or those products that are being sold in those spaces. So with that being said, I mean, perfect example, we're talking about uh, vape pens just earlier, right? Um, yeah. And we're, we were talking with a, a executive at one of these, one of the, the large vape pen companies, and he essentially just won a patent case. And yeah. the patent case that, that he won uh, was essentially for heating and cooling a liquid, right? Yeah. And so like yeah. that patent then could have applications in mm-hmm. so many other areas from a technology standpoint where you're heating and cooling a liquid quickly. Yeah. That yep. so I think that that in by 2030, I think that you start to see specific technologies that were developed for the cannabis space start yep. to bleed into other industries. Yeah, actually. So wait, let me let me amend my prior answer, and I think that that's uh, an astute good point. I think that we'll see more of the patents in the pharmaceutical and medical realm than anything else, and here's why. Right. Um, interesting thing I learned recently, right? The endocannabinoid system, which was, I think, one of the most recent systems uh, discovered in the body, is actually the system that is the most distributed throughout your body. Right. And some of the theories of relation to that, it ties to homeostasis, and which is why it can have all sorts of different effects. You have an incredibly genetically diverse plant. I'm going to throw in fungi too. Right. So we have lost decades of research, right, relating to cannabinoids and, you know, psychedelics. And some of the coolest things that I've seen is they're going, they're using AI programs now to like sequence, right, cannabis and sequence incredibly diverse fungi. And when it's not like killing us and like the show, The Last of Us, right, holds tremendous you know, medical benefit potential, not just for mental health, but now I'm also seeing for physical health items. I think the amount of drugs that are going to come out of that to treat different medicines is going to be mind-boggling. I agree. What do you think, Brian? I think what John said is perfectly true, that investing a little bit up front will make a massive difference down the road. And I think with the companies that are able to kind of siphon off a little bit of that money to do that will be huge, hugely rewarded down the future because I think we're approaching an IP war. And I I can only hope that all of our friends out there are retaining someone like yourself, John, to help position them for the future. So for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to find an IP attorney. Where can they find you? The Greenspoon Martyr website, you know, the podcast will be up soon, but it's, um, I, I like it, you know, the new law firm, you don't have to memorize any lawyer names uh, for the domain. You just have to remember John, J-O-N dot Puro, P-U-R-O-W at G-M, like good morning at gmlaw.com. That's my email address. So happy to always have a conversation. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Yeah, it was awesome. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while, while we, we break, break it all down. down.